2: In that case, I pronounce you lucky.
0: Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror. I must
0: not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is a little death that brings total obliteration. No. Be afraid. Be very afraid. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before.
1: A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. In the nearly 100 episodes of this show, we've talked about so many kinds of monsters. We've used monsters as a springboard to talk about science. We've talked about how much human culture focuses on the strange and mysterious creatures which lurk in the folklore of every country. But in this episode, we're going to take a step deeper into the unknown and talk about fear. Some monsters in folklore are meant to be fearsome. For example, it's likely that tales of the Scottish water monster, the Kelpie, is meant to frighten children away from water and thus prevent them from drowning. And in that sense, the fear of monsters is meant to preserve life. I'm Blake Smith, and today, Karen Stolzno and I interview a scientist who spent years studying fear at a level Stephen King could only dream of. Let's get right down to the
0: Monster
1: talk. So today we're joined by Dr. Kerry Ressler, who is a medical investigator for the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, focusing on the biological mechanisms of fear. He's a practicing psychiatrist with specialization in fear-related disorders, and his research includes the molecular biology and neural circuitry related to fear, including the way fear develops and how it can be extinguished. He has received many honors and awards in his field, and a link to a much more detailed biography for Dr. Ressler will be in the show notes at monstertalk.org. Thank you so much for joining us today on Monster Talk, Dr. Ressler.
2: It's a real pleasure to be here. Thanks so much.
1: So just to get started and to give some sort of framework for the rest of this discussion, from a biological perspective, uh, I mean, I think we all know what fear feels like, but what is fear in, in, in the neurological terms?
2: Right. Well, we actually... Um in the in the field of fear we actually debate this quite a bit because at at one level fear is a human construct defining what our experience is when we feel afraid <laughs> so that's a bit circular but what so what we can t- say it is in in a uh, neuroscience perspective is really a working definition of the response that a human or an animal f- expresses when they are feeling threatened. And so that is a combination of feeling um, a, an elevated heart rate, increase in breathing, increase in sweating, in muscle tension, in hyperarousal, basically, all of the things that one can imagine at a basal neural state. That prepare for the fight or flight reflex, basically to be able to get the hell out of there, or to be able to fight and prepare to, um, you know, to defend oneself. So it is that set of symptoms in the case of a disorder, or that set of behaviors and feelings that we ascribe to the sense of fear.
0: And is this something that all animals with a brain experience?
2: Certainly, all vertebrates. So everything from fish through pretty much all rodent species all the way up to humans. It's not so clear about lower level invertebrates, though clearly even simple flies and, and worms, other sort of species that we study a lot in the field of biology, can certainly learn to have avoidance responses and escape behaviors. So they certainly have behaviors that are consistent with survival, but we don't they don't have the same brain regions that we associate with the fear Um, feelings and fear response. So it's harder to say what their internal experience is.
1: So there must be some sort of anticipation ability required in order to experience fear, right?
2: Right, so that I think is where we really sort of bring the science in, which is um, what we call fear conditioning, and, and that was really defined by Pavlov over a hundred years ago in St. Petersburg, Russia. And so Pavlovian conditioning, most people are familiar with Pavlov ringing a bell and then giving a dog a treat, and then over time the dog would associate the bell with anticipating the treat and would salivate. Well, the lesser known work from Pavlov is all of the initial work in fear conditioning, where he could do the same thing but scare the dog with a shock or. With a pinch or something mildly painful, so that the same bell or the same cue would predict this thing that the animal was afraid of, and so when we study it in the in the laboratory or in human laboratories, um, we're looking at how the person can anticipate that something predicts this bad outcome. And obviously, if it's if it's in the realm of of, of anxiety and fear and fear behaviors, or even you know watching movies and being afraid. You know, it's that the music that the horror film is playing, you know, as it starts to we know something's around the corner, you know, something bad's going to happen. It all is designed to help increase the anticipation of the bad outcome.
0: What's the difference between anxiety and fear then?
2: So, again, this is something that's debated a lot for which we may or may not have clear answers, but I can sort of tell you where we are with sort of the working definitions of where we are now. And that is fear is generally associated with something that has a very specific um specific cue, a specific expectation of what's going to happen. So I've associated a particular um, specific event or a person or a monster in your case or a tone or a sound with something bad that's going to happen. And I know that that, that's relatively temporally associated. So when thing A happens, then the B bad outcome is going to happen and I'm afraid of that specific connection. In contrast, anxiety seems to be more the non specific anticipation of something maybe further away or harder to put one's finger on, or not even really clear what the um, event is that one is anxious about, um, but sort of a shared set of symptoms. And interestingly, a number of um, decades of work now has suggested. By people in the field like Mike Davis and Dave Walker and others that there are two different brain regions that share many functions and actually share their evolutionary and developmental um, areas. So the amygdala is what we usually associate with fear. And a brain region called the BNST is part of what we call the extended amygdala. But the amygdala seems to be involved in the specific fear reaction, whereas the BNST seems to be involved in more of these distal anxiety-type reactions. They both, interestingly, have hardwired neural connections with the subcortical and brainstem response that makes all of that hardwired fight-or-flight response, the heart rate, the breathing, the sweating, the muscle tension, the hyperarousal. But the amygdala response seems to be when you have a very specific cue again specific sounds sights pictures that activate this in a quick way whereas the BNST seems to be more of a non-specific unpredict we don't you, you can't predict what's going to happen and so you're sort of prepared for all sorts of things in, in that way. So it seems that um, there's that we can define anxiety versus fear in sort of psychological terms and sort of acute and expected versus unpredictable and long term. But we can also start to define it in terms of neural circuits.
1: I'm fascinated by the way science has worked to try to narrow down the sort of neural correlates, the physiological components of the brain that correspond with different emotions and behaviors and ways of thinking. And uh, I imagine that over the I guess probably the past ten or fifteen years the uh, the the amount of granularity has increased. How specific can it get now as as to what regions are involved in these sort of uh, uh highly emotional responses?
2: It's pretty remarkable I think um you know I, one of the reasons why I study fear and disorders related to fear is because I feel like um I'm, I'm, I'm trained as a psychiatrist as well as a neurobiologist and my, I'm really interested in everything, you know, related to sort of how the mind, the brain creates the mind and behavior. So as I was, you know, 15 years ago or so kind of defi- deciding the direction of my laboratory, it was really based on what area do I think in my lifetime do we have the best chance of making progress in. And that's why I chose fear. I think for among all of the various emotions of appetitive behaviors and liking things and addictions and and wanting behaviors, even as much as, you know, affiliative and love behaviors to a variety of other kinds of disgust behaviors. To me, fear is the one that the field of neuroscience has made the most progress in. And we now, I could lecture you for hours on the specific circuits that we know from the various... Um, brain regions involved in, in getting sensory information from the outside world, sending that information directly to this brain region called the amygdala, and then multiple parts of the amygdala. So it used to be just called the amygdala, and now there's known to be like 15 different subregions of it when you talk about granularity, and how that information is processed through there. And then within each of those regions, there are specific types of cells that are differently um, seeming to hold sort of the fear on pathways versus the fear inhibitory pathways. Because with all of this, one has to be able to flexibly change behavior and unlearn fear as well as learn fear in the first place. And then the hardwired projections from the amygdala output stations to the brainstem circuits that create the fear response, the heart rate, the pulse, the blood pressure, et cetera. um, And how all of that works together of course there's still many areas where where it's not fully understood but more so than probably any other kind of emotion or behavior it feels like all of the main parts are are coming together in a way that it will not be very long before it's not so much of a mystery and we can really start to explain at least one particular kind of behavior how that happens in a person
0: that's very exciting um, to hear that, so what kinds of research does your lab do to examine fear from a scientific perspective?
2: We really work both from the bottom up perspective in um, in everything from cell culture to mouse models, and then from the top down perspective, taking People um, in who've been highly traumatized and have fear-related disorders. So, from the from the human side, we study disorders of post-traumatic stress disorder, both in civilians in people who live in highly traumatized environments, often in inner city environments, um, neighborhoods that have been rattled by violence and and crime, et cetera. And we study also veterans with PTSD. And in both of those cases, we're trying to understand the brain regions using things like um Magnetic resonance imaging, MRI, um, as well as physiology, where we can actually look at people's heart rate as well as their sweating response, the skin response, to look at physiological measures of the fear response as well as the brain measures of the fear response to see how people who have fear-related disorders in which they overgeneralize fear or they're, they're, they're more likely to learn to be afraid or they have a harder time inhibiting fear reactions, how those different processes may be at work. We're also studying within that we know that humans, um, that these fear-related disorders, we focus mostly on PTSD, but we can think of the phobias, panic disorder, and PTSD as all very much related to fear, and even some parts of obsessive compulsive disorder where people have germ phobias, and in all of those, they share certain components of over-responding to fear, tending to generalize fear cues, and having a difficult time learning to inhibit those fear reactions. We're also studying the genetics of that, and that it turns out about 30 or 40% of the different risk for those who have fear disorders is mediated via genetics. So, particularly with understanding the gene pathways and the brain regions involved in fear, though that again can be translated from. Across species, as we talked about before, and the mouse amygdala, the same brain region, is very similar. We think to the human, as well as many of the, of the genes that are involved. So our goal is to identify the genes and the brain regions in humans, and then take that back to the animal models to understand how these genes are working to create fear responses, how the brain changes to inhibit fear, and then by understanding those pathways, can we come up with new ways um, based on rationally designed um, neuroscience approaches to and prevent fear-related disorders in people.
1: Is there some Uh, specific genes that seem to code for increased fear, or is it a relationship or interconnectedness between a set of different kinds of genes?
2: What we don't know is a lot more than we know at this point, but there are definitely gene pathways that... um, associate with increased fear responses in people, both at a physiological level and at an imaging level, as well as increased PTSD responses. And we're starting to be able to say in those same cases how those particular gene pathways may be involved in the mouse fear system and how you know, it, it may be associated as well. So it's not that, you know, the, the importance of genetics is to re- remember that everybody has the same gene. So it's not that one person has a gene or not, but it's more that slight variations in one gene may make it more likely to be expressed or not, or make one person activate one neural system slightly more than another person, et cetera.
1: Sure. And I, I kind of suspect that if you had genes that led to more fear, that that's actually probably more likely to lead to survival trait than a you know genes for bravery
2: <laughs> exactly so i mean i think you know that's another yeah from a, from an evolutionary perspective it's not shouldn't be surprising that that in an in an, you know i think what we call post traumatic stress disorder now and other fear related disorders might have been quite survival related processes when you were really quite likely to be eaten by, by other animals or, or, or killed in battle, etc. so it is it's hard to say you know I think we, we try to stay away from the term disorder and it's really more about what is functional in today's world and what allows people to be feel fulfilled. Um, and certainly, the person who has severe PTSD who can 't get out of their house and can 't hold relationships and can't hold a job is clearly impaired in a very serious way um, but um, that doesn't mean that the underlying component of that fear response was not helpful at certain points um, evolutionarily or even in their life. A lot of times soldiers you know when they're still in battle or still on um, you know at the at the location they don't say that there's any problem because they want to be hyper aroused they want to be always on alert they want to be suspicious it's only when those same symptoms and those same responses can't be renormalized when they get back home that it becomes a problem
1: that's a perfect lead in to something we wanted to ask you which is when does abnormal psychology become a disorder when when does it become a treatable uh, syndrome or whatever. Get a label and get a set of treatments assigned to it. What what triggers that sort of – but it sounds like it's a spectrum.
2: It's definitely a spectrum and it's really all about definition of functionality. So one can have the same set of symptoms and feel hyper aroused and feel – have elevated heart rate and diff- you know, and, and fast breathing and feel scared but function very well in their relationships and in their work. And not seek treatment and not want treatment, whereas other people, you know, another person may not have as many overt symptoms, but their level of avoidance is so high or their level of intrusive thoughts is so high that they can't hold down a job or can't have a relationship without having an anger outburst or whatever. And that person very much would seek treatment. So it's it's a, it's 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 both a spectrum of where the symptoms are, and generally the people with the highest symptoms also have the least functionality, and vice versa. But there's clearly some. Um, non-overlap between where the symptoms lie and where functionality is. So phobias and and disorders then are really defined as to when do the symptoms of fear become so generalized or so impairing that it's preventing someone from having the life they want or able to have relationships and work, et cetera.
0: So what are some of the types of treatments that you have for these uh, disorders and phobias and how successful are they?
2: So the medication treatments are pretty limited. Um, we, you know, the, the the standard antidepressants what we call SSRIs like Prozac Zoloft selects all of those that we've heard of frequently that work for depression also work for a number of the anxiety disorders and they're really the the only medications that are FDA approved for post-traumatic stress disorder for the most part people don't take medications for phobias because they although for 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 specific phobias like you know fear of heights or dogs they just tend to avoid them and most people are able to, to get by in their life with that social phobia where people have severe your social anxiety and have trouble you know in in work and relationships with interacting with people or trouble giving talks or speeches or you know standing up in crowds you can avoid some of that to some extent but a lot of times people will find that either in their goals and their relationships or their goals in their work that eventually those fears get to the point that they have to do something about it and again the SSRIs antidepressants can be helpful there, but for the most part, medication-wise, we don't have really good treatments, and and again, that's one of the goals of understanding the biology better. In contrast, um, this area is one of the areas for which psychotherapy has shown to be the most effective because there are very specific kinds of therapies that work very well, and again, there are a number of them, but the kinds of therapy that have been most Um, well validated and empirically supported are what we call exposure based psychotherapy and this is just very simply where you learn to not be afraid anymore. So the most sort of extreme example is if you're afraid of spiders, um, you would do exposure therapy so that you would start in a room with a therapist. First, they'd teach you how to breathe and calm your breathing and calm your um, emotions and calm your fear. And then you'd start in a room with, say, a spider across the room, maybe a tarantula, and then they would bring it closer and closer and closer. And by the end of the session, you'd be holding it.
0: <laughs> we just had a guest on the show uh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, she had a, a terrible fear of spiders. And uh now she's a real connoisseur of spiders and has written books about them and uh yeah she's really into them
2: yeah exactly so i think you know that's one of the ways that people overcome it which is sort of right in and um, face your fear most fully. And so that um, that basic mechanism really works well and it's used in all sorts of ways. So that's sort of an example of spiders with, with fear of heights. You go up elevators. Nowadays, there's a lot of, of techniques that make it easier to do these things in, in a therapist's office, for example with virtual reality. So we can use a virtual reality fear of heights, a virtual reality for fear of flying or even giving talks. And there's even virtual reality approaches with on the battlefield so people can start to study PTSD in this way. So all of these exposure-based ways, whether it's through talk therapy, talking about the experience, talking about the trauma memory, or talking about the feared object, or experiencing it in real life, and in psychology terms, that's called in vivo exposure. You're really experiencing what you're afraid of in real life. You're holding that spider. They all are built on um, the brain mechanisms that, again, were defined by Pavlov over 100 years ago called extinction of fear. And this is where um, you... So most people, when they hear the word extinction, think um, of, you know, the dinosaurs. (laughs) And and it's a a similar term and a similar root word, but it's basically making the fear becomes extinct. And it's by... By, by re-exposing the brain to the feared object over and over again in the absence of the bad outcome of the feared death, attack, etc., the brain slowly learns that in this place, in this situation, I don't have to be afraid anymore of this event or this cue or this creature. So that's the basic mechanism. I and mean, we now know that it's not a it's not a forgetting of the memory. It's rather a new learning that in this place, in this situation – I can this this thing that I was formerly afraid of is not is can now be thought of as safe, and so it's safety learning or learning to inhibit the fear of uh, previously feared objects.
1: So you know it's interesting. Uh, Karen and I are both very involved in skepticism and sort of promoting the use of science and and uh, that sort of methodology for evaluating what's real and what's not real. And something that's been a concern to me for some time is that. Uh, people have beliefs that uh, are very different and they're not always based on anything rational. A lot of times we come up with rational reasons to explain why we have beliefs. But I've been under the uh, suspicion that beliefs are accrued over time and that as a result, you can't just stop believing that you have to build new beliefs instead. And that seems like a very similar uh, statement that you just made there. And I wonder... Uh, Do we ever just sort of unload this sort of bad baggage when we have something that's wrong in our brain that's not true or not valid? Uh, Does it always involve building up some new replacement structure inside the brain, some new kind of knowledge in order to cope with that sort of information? and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com.
2: No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Yeah, I mean, I think that's sort of at a higher level than I think I have data to, to speak to. <laughs> 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 but it's certainly as, as, <laughs> as, a, as a practicing psychiatrist, I'll use more the art of medicine instead of the science for this one. No problem. Um,
1: <laughs> I, I just I wonder because, you know, people think, well... I've just demonstrated your belief is wrong you should understand that I've given you information that totally you know and that's not what happens people can't let go of that yeah. belief that simply but I suspect <laughs> that it's a it's a an accretive process to build a new belief or fear and it's an accretive or you need to build. Something else to replace it. I don't think, and I'm not aware. I mean, you might be able to tell me, but is there any sort of ablative process in neurology? No, would- I
2: mean, I mean, there's discussions, and <laughs> we can talk about a little bit, of, if you like, about a process, a new process called reconsolidation, where it looks like in certain cases um, memories can become um, relatively labile again, and maybe su- susceptible to to ablating them, as you say. But I think that is a very rare and not very frequent thing. And I think the idea of continuing to build upon layer and layer and layer of new memories and new associations such that those, you know, the primitive memories and and beliefs, as you say, we had as a kid are never fully gone. They're just added to and made more complex. And a lot of caveats are added. (laughs) Sure, sure. So, but I think, you know, something I did want to take it with that thought and go a little bit further with it, which is, I think, another reason why it's so hard to connect cognitive strategies to emotional ones. So, for example, you know, someone says, here's data against your belief. Why can't you change it? Well, particularly when it comes to emotional memories, it's important to remember that we now know that there are many forms of learning and memory that happen in the brain in parallel. And what we're most conscious of are our declarative memories, our explicit factual memories and, and you know, contextual memories and who, what, when or where. And that's what most of logic is built upon. But there are many other forms of memories that are being laid down in different brain structures at the same time that these declarative memories are made. So the easiest one for people to get a hold of is riding a bike. We have motor memories. You can't explain to somebody how to ride a bike. You have to teach your muscles to do it. And once they do it, it's actually very hard to unlearn how to ride a bike. Well, the same thing is happening with emotions. We're having emotional memories that are being laid down in parallel with our declarative um, contextual memories. When we're traumatized, we certainly have a declarative memory of the bad things that happen, of the context, of the people, of what the monster looked like. But we are also at a preconscious, non-language level forming memories of those visual information and auditory information and smells, etc., deep within our brain and making those fear memories. And those are not nearly as easily accessible with words. And that's why exposure-based therapy, in part, requires going through the process of being afraid and actively relearning it, and talk alone won't often do it.
0: That's fascinating, yeah. So I'm just wondering if there are any neurological disorders that leave people without fear.
2: They're rare, but there are, um, yeah, there, are, there are a few, um, like urbach Wife disorder, for example, is one where the the amygdala, for reasons that are not known, becomes calcified and basically doesn't work anymore. Um, so there's a few case studies. Um, Ralph Adolf, at um, who was formerly at WashU, um, did some studies with these people, and they would um, they'd be able to explain. They 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 usually it was adult by the time they knew they had this, so that they had learned enough from society that they could describe fear as being you know someone responding as if, you know, avoiding or something or showing a face, but they actually couldn't experience it. And if they had to draw a picture of being afraid, they had a very hard time. If you measure their galvanic skin response, they had a hard time. So there's certainly people who don't have, of course, it seems like the brain can, for something as evolutionary critical as fear, there are other ways to learn how to avoid things that besides the amygdala. So one certainly can learn other coping strategies that probably look somewhat like the purpose of fear, but it's pretty clear they don't have the same internal perception of fear that we're talking about. And interestingly, more so than not, those people had more difficult lives. And I think part of the thought is that um, at least a subset of people who have experienced early trauma often are at more risk for experiencing later trauma. And I think it's sometimes because the, it it be, can become difficult to know what is safe and what is unsafe, and it can, can become more difficult to make appropriate decisions about relationships, etc., and one can end up in not as great. A, so the, you know the the, the amygdala in being a little bit neurotic or a little bit anxious probably helps protect you in relationships as well as it does in other kinds of decision making in life.
0: And could there be any implications for uh, these conditions for treatments for people who suffer severe phobias and fears?
2: I don't think there's there are too few people to really understand enough of the biology okay. I think to okay. translate that, wow. but it'd be a big, great idea you know if there were if there were a rampant subclass of people whose amygdalas didn't work, <laughs> <laughs> we might worry about them for different reasons yeah. uh, there's actually interesting data on sociopathy so um a, you know it's it's a very controversial literature but it's kind of an interesting one that a subset of violent criminals um show lower amygdala activation when viewing fearful things right so that that's um, that part of their brain is somehow not working to inhibit some of what we might think of as socially appropriate behaviors but I don't I don't think enough is known about any of that to really say that there's a good biological model that we could take um,
1: so I'm curious I don't know if you've looked into this or not but the Uh, there's some fears that seem to be universal across cultures. And I know I've read at least some people wondering if there's a genetic basis for those kind of fears. Like, I don't, you know, obviously not every culture has beds and closets, but it seems universal that children are afraid of something under them or in them, you know. Uh, Yeah. Have you seen anything that uh, that would constitute some sort of evidence for any sort of genetic fears or genetically based fears?
2: I don't think there's any data that I'm aware of that, Has combined sort of a very basic, you know, genetic or circuitry-based process with any fine-grained specific one fear versus another. You know, I think I think there are certainly things that seem to be consistent across cultures where it's well, you know, phobias. You know, we we tend to across cultures have fears of heights and snakes and dogs. And even blood to some extent, but we tend to never have fears of guns and cars and planes, things that, you know, are probably more dangerous. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, there's thoughts there that there that there are parts of the brain that are sort of set up for what's called prepared pathways so that although – it's not thought that you necessarily inherit fears of snakes per se, but rather you may be, the brain may be set up in a way that it's more likely for your visual cortex to be able to send a signal of a long, squiggly, stick-looking thing to your amygdala and that activate a fear response more easily than a motorcycle or a car. Um, what does that mean, and what is that about? It's not so clear, but you know, evolutionarily, it's thought. Well, we have millennia of certain kinds of predators being more likely to hurt us, and interestingly, with um, with blood, um, it's sort of an opposite response. Whereas most of the predator based fears, um, one either has a fight or flight response or a f- actual freezing response, and that we is one of the main ways we measure fears in, in rodents, is because. Um, birds and snakes usually use movement as their detection, um, of their, their prey. And so, um, the rodents actually have this built in freezing response and most people don't have a full on freezing response. So a lot of people will, you know, we have the terms in our language, you know, frozen in fear and people will describe, describe dreams where they couldn't move. They were so afraid. So it's clearly embedded somewhere in there, that part of our fear response. In, in contrast. Um, with blood, you actually tend to have a vasovagal response and pass out, um, you know, people who are particularly afraid of blood. And that's that's interesting evolutionarily because, you know, presumably if you cut yourself and – um there's no medicine available, your best chance of survival is to lower your blood pressure and hope that a clot forms before you fully bleed out. So both of these make sense in terms of how the brain seems to have evolved to do it, that we don't understand why one versus another.
0: So fear is often seen as a negative emotion um, from what we've been discussing, but there's also this huge market for fear as well when it comes to amusement parks and scary movies and video games. So why is it that fear, which we often see something that's negative can also be entertainment.
2: Um, It's because though, well, I mean, I don't, I don't know the answer, but I can give you, I think what we think is a pretty good guess for the field. Um, Though we tend to talk about the role of the amygdala, in fear because that's where it, what's kind of it's best understood at. It's clearly playing a very similar role in a number of other emotions, and it's also playing out a role in terms of appetitive emotions. And, in fact, one of the best ways to activate, though, the way we tend to activate the amygdala is by having people look at fearful versus neutral faces. If you have um, adults, particularly men, in an in a MRI scanner, the best way to activate their amygdala is show them nude females. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. (laughs) I've heard about that kind of research. (laughs) Not from personal experience or anything. No, no. (laughs) But so what does, and and we also know that people who have addictive disorders, um, so if someone's a recovered alcoholic or a recovered drug addict and they have a particularly stressful or fearful time, that's actually a huge. Um, risk factor for relapsing and all of this is thought to be due to the amygdala's projections to the parts of the brain that are re- associated with reward so what I'm where I'm going with this is when you are afraid or when you have something very exciting the amygdala is kind of doing a similar thing and there's probably... Subtle levels where it's tweaking whether you have a fight or flight response or whether you just have an excited response. But it's similar hormones. It's similar adrenaline responses. It's similar dopamine responses. Um, And so that – well, another experiment from the the 60s, a classic experiment, was they took – students and they told them they were they gave them um, a drug so this is i don't think you could do this in modern day irb language but in the 60s this was done and they said this drug one one group of people they said this drug is going to make you excited and feel like you're on top of the world and that you can do anything and you're having the best day of your life and another group they told that this was going to be a very scary experience and they gave both groups amphetamine and they showed remarkably that suggestibility could lead to essentially these two very opposite emotional responses with the same amphetamine dose simply by being what you expect. And I think that's what horror films and riding roller coasters and all these things are about. People who are afraid of them hate them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yep. but, but people who like this, the the adrenaline junkies, so to speak, they're able to have I presumably enough of their brain knows that this is a safe context that they're not really going to die. They're not really going to be eaten by the monster there or fall off the roller coaster so that they're able to enjoy the pleasurable component of that stimulation without feeling fully afraid.
1: You know, it's interesting that I think it, knowing that it's fictional obviously mitigates it to some extent, right? So uh, I've seen videos, uh, unfortunately, of actual beheadings uh not something i would ever want to see and right. not something i can seem to forget and the impact of, of those actual videos compared to all the many many horror movies i've seen where people were decapitated right they don't even compare you know it's right. not even in the same ballpark right, right. So,
2: so you had the con- contextual awareness of the difference
1: there. yes so it's, it's quite disturbing but
2: I do, and, and I think movies. for some people they're not, you know, they're able to con- cognitively, again, with this sort of contextual part of their brain, know that this is not really going to happen, but their emotional response is so strong they can't dampen it down during the movie or during the roller coaster so that they still can't enjoy it.
1: Yeah, and I, I would I would suspect that uh, as one grows older from childhood. It becomes increasingly easier to make those distinctions, but as a child, obviously I was terrorized by even the simplest <laughs> B movie from the fifties, and my kids seem to be the same way i I'm very hesitant to let them watch a lot of the kind of entertainment that's out there because
2: do they know what you do for a living oh yeah, and they, and they <laughs>
1: It's the craziest thing in the world. So, what does your dad do? Well, I mean, he he does something with computers and he hunts monsters, right?
2: <laughs> I guess you're hunt them, so you're a good guy, so it's okay. That's right. Well,
1: that's what I've been trying to. You're, do, the, you're so. the ultimate
2: dad. Well, I Sophia. would like
1: to believe so. We'll see if they respect me later. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so,
1: but but we do love monsters here, and we love science. And it's been fantastic talking with you. Mm, uh, absolutely. I, is there anything else you'd like to talk about your research? That because one of the things I I think we do here pretty effectively is uh give uh, some of our younger listeners an opportunity to hear about different type of scientific research fields they might go into if they're interested in that. So uh, I- anything you would want to say to a prospective neuroscience uh, listener?
2: Well, I certainly think for all of you, you know, what, what going into a career in science is about is – being able to get paid for the rest of your life, doing things you love and basically playing, which is trying to understand how the brain works. And it's a remarkable privilege and it's also something that we hope can really make a difference in, in helping people's lives. So um, it's very exciting in that way. And I think it's, a, you know, it's an exciting to be able to do something that's both a passion and um, is always interesting.
1: I did happen to, I, I found out about your uh, your lab and the research through Fernbank Science Center doing the uh, Science of Fear presentation and uh, for Halloween last October.
2: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that was a really fun experience. Yeah.
1: Those were very happy students. I mean, I know they looked, you know, weary, but as all students do, <laughs> but they really seemed to be enjoying themselves and loved sharing all this uh, great research with very young people. I mean, I my daughters are, uh, are only nine and they got to touch their first brains, which is great, yeah. so.
2: <laughs>
1: uh, <laughs> fantastic. <Not their> <laughs> I really appreciate
0: that. So. <laughs> well, Kerry, we have a, a final question that we just like to ask all of our guests. Uh, and that is, what's your favorite monster?
2: Well, I thought about this, and my first thought should have probably been given what Blake just said, you know, probably Frankenstein, since we can take brains around and show them to people. You know, that seems pretty cool. But that's probably not it either. And I actually can't remember ever particularly being afraid of monsters. I was certainly sort of afraid of non specific, you know, People coming to get me or dogs and stuff as a kid, but it's been a long time. So I think I'm going to go the other direction with monsters and say cookie monster. Really? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Too many cookies. Be it's, a, it's, a, it's
2: the safe monster that I'm, <laughs> uh, I'm all for.
1: <laughs> monster and his dark companion, type two diabetes. Yes, <laughs> yeah.
0: That's certainly a response we haven't heard before. Thank you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, really, so much for the research that you do and for taking time to talk to our listeners. We oh, really appreciate very it.
0: Very interesting. Thank you. Take
2: care. Y'all have a great day.
1: Monster dog. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith, and today you heard me and Dr. Karen Stolzno interview neuroscientist and psychiatrist Dr. Kerry Ressler. You can find out more about Dr. Ressler's amazing research at his website, wrestlerlab.com. And a link to that will be in the show notes at monstertalk.org. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine, and even though we've turned on a nightlight and told them a bedtime story, the good folks at Skeptic are still afraid that I'll forget to mention that the opinions expressed on the show are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. Sleep tight, guys. I got this. This was episode 96. Just a few more regular episodes before our 100th. Thank you to everyone who's already sent me their contribution of their own favorite monster to this special episode. Let me remind you of how you can participate, too. Hello, listener. How would you like to be on Monster Talk? I don't have time to interview everyone, but I'd like to do something interesting for episode 100 of the show, and I'd like your help. Here's all you need to do. One, decide what your favorite monster is. Two, record yourself digitally using this format. My name is blank, and my favorite monster is blank. Obviously, don't use the word blank. Fill in your actual information there. And then three, save that file and email it to me, blake at monstertalk.org. And here's the important part. Put the words episode 100 in the email subject. That's all you have to do. Send me your name and your favorite monster as an audio file and put episode 100 in the subject. Thanks for helping us make episode 100 extra fun. Okay, thanks again for listening. Please tell your friends about the show. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Do you know that you can now subscribe to Skeptic Magazine digitally? Just grab our free Skeptic Magazine app, currently compatible with iOS, Android, PC, Mac, Kindle Fire, Kindle Fire HD, and BlackBerry Playbook. Head over to skeptic.com slash magazine app to find out more and download more of your favorite Skeptic content. Mm-hmm. I'm fascinated by the, uh, the way uh, neurology or, or neurological bi- uh, biomechanical What's the right word to put it? Let me start let me try again. I'm fascinated by the way science <laughs> I'll just be less general. <laughs> work. Uh, I'm fascinated by the way science has worked to try to narrow down the sort of neural correlates, the physiological components of the brain.
0: With the lucky land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.